Hello, everybody, and welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library. Three games at a time. We play them briefly. We judge them harshly. We rank them. That's pretty much all you need to know. Also, uh, defund the police. I am Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero, and uh, abolish the police as well. Yeah, do both of those things. Okay, so I know, I know, y'all are probably getting tired of hearing about this. Some of y'all listen to this are probably just looking for something to distract yourself for a little while. I get it, and, and I understand. Having said that, though, we do feel it's important that this all stay in everybody's mind somewhere, somewhere in the back of your mind. Even when you're just kind of taking a break, doing a little bit of self-care, like don't completely forget about it. And don't let the news media make you feel like everything's dying down, that we're all getting back to normal. We're not, and we shouldn't. Yeah, this is this is an ongoing struggle, and everybody should think as much as, as much as you can. Stay engaged with it, and don't let it just sort of fade out of your mind. The conversation is actually starting to move in the direction that it needs to be going in. You know, defunding and abolishing police is actually like a talking point now that major news outlets are picking up. And it is something that everybody is thinking about, whether they agree with it or not. This is a good thing. We need to keep that up. We just wanted to put that out there at the the top of the episode. So even though we're we're going to be talking about, you know, Super Nintendo games, we're going to be having fun. We don't want anybody to to think that we did our Black Lives Matter post last week in place of an episode and now we're getting back to normal. That's not what we're doing. This still matters. It will continue to matter. Please keep it in mind. And also, before we get into talking about the games for this week, I do just want to shout out, in case you're you're not aware of it, the incredibly good bundle for racial justice and equality that itch.io, the independent game-selling website, is doing right now. They are essentially giving away over like 1,400 games. Wow, is it up to 1,400 now? Yeah, it is. For uh, a minimum donation of $5, you get what is now up to, it's 1,427 items. All the proceeds from this go to the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, and the community bail fund split 50-50. Even if there's like one game on there that you think is worth playing, there's no way you're getting a bad deal out of that, and the money is going to a tremendously good cause. So please give that a look if you haven't already. Yeah, um, I actually already uh, purchased that bundle. I spent 20 bucks on mine. I challenge all of you who are going to get it, spend at least that much because that is an amazing deal. That is like you're getting way more games than the Super Nintendo library has, mm-hmm. like, just for reference. Yeah. And actually, they're not all games. Some of them are, like, you know, tech demos. Some of them are asset packs. But still, just a bunch of really neat stuff in there. Yeah, some of them are tabletop game source books or uh, just pieces of, of illustrated fiction. There's lots of stuff in there. And if you're listening to this on the day it comes out, I believe there is still about three days left for you to get this bundle. So please give it a look and consider getting it and donating to a uh, a tremendously good cause. Yep, and I will try to remember to have a link in the description for this podcast to go to that website. Although, um, seriously, just go on Twitter and like probably about 50 people <laughs> right, <laughs> tweeted yeah. it out at this right, point. Yeah. But it shouldn't be hard to find. That being said, we have got some games to talk about today. What have we got, Steampunk Link? Okay, so we're going to start off with a little bit of Madden. We got Madden 93, the second Madden game that, we've, uh, that we're going to be covering on this show. We've got Cyberspin, which uh, is not a golf or tennis game like we were speculating <laughs> last time. It is a futuristic sort of F1 
top-down racing game? Yeah, it's a racing game. Uh, it is ostensibly futuristic. I don't see a lot of evidence of that in the game itself, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. And then we've got Chuck Rock, which is a 2D side-scrolling platformer, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, folks, I'm just going to say right out of the gate, like I think we're going to be talking a lot more about the history of the games and the companies that made them than we are the actual games. I didn't find any of these games particularly interesting or worth playing for more than, a, you know, maybe an hour. What did, you, what did you think overall? Yeah, I felt kind of the same way. I mean, this is not by any means the worst week of games we've ever had, but no, no. these games are all pretty unremarkable, I would say. They are kind of just there. I guess the only thing to do is really just to kind of get into it and talk about it. Uh, we are still in the middle of November 1992. We're going to be here for mm, quite a while longer. So uh, I guess let's just jump into it. We have uh, taken enough time. Let's get into Madden 93. has its own theme song it's got Madden because you know yeah um when you're in the football stadium you're always cheering on the person commentating the game that's yeah that's the most that's important thing that's what everybody's really there for is to hear John Madden or whoever commentates on football games now I don't know who that is, but... Well, it's, it's nobody right now, thanks to COVID. Oh, but, that's true, yeah. <laughs> so this game was uh, developed and published by EA on the SNES, at least. However, we're going to take a bit of a detour today, because when we look over at the Genesis port, things get a little bit more interesting, because EA actually went to an outside developer for this one, and there were some consequences to that. And not necessarily bad consequences, but... Uh, we'll we'll talk about that here. So this game was developed on the Genesis by Blue Sky Productions. Uh, this was a studio based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It was founded by Paul Newarth, who I, I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, and Ned Lerner in 1990. Uh, Lerner had actually started his own company prior to this called Lerner Research, and in 1992, shortly after they worked on this game, the companies merged to become Looking Glass Studios. That would be the studio responsible for the Thief series and the System Shock series. So pretty well-known game studio there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as you'll talk about, this game actually has a part in making making those games possible. Yeah, New Earth credits Madden 93 with the project that provided the company with the money to greatly expand. So it's possible if EA hadn't given them this project, uh, we may not have seen quite as many of those series that they produced. Um, he also suggested in a podcast interview that the amount of money that EA paid them would cause EA to develop all future Madden games in-house. The game was a massive success for EA. I guess they decided, well, we want to keep more of that money for ourselves instead of paying a lot of it out in royalties. So this is not only the last Madden game that they would look to outside developers to work on, it's also the last Madden game to not have the NFL license officially attached to it. The only other interesting things I could really find out about this was that apparently Ubisoft was in the works to make an NES and Game Boy port of this game that for one reason or another never materialized. As far as we're aware, the only real evidence of those ports ever existing are a few screenshots from a Game Informer magazine back in the day. Frank Cifaldi of the Video Game History Museum says he actually recognizes those screenshots and that they were from just a 
ROM that basically consisted of nothing but screenshots. It is unlikely that there is even a working prototype out there of this game. That's one way to do a bull shot, I guess. <laughs> yeah. What a different time, though. The idea of Ubisoft doing a port of Madden. Yay. Yeah. John Madden Football 93, as you said, it does not have the NFL license, but uh, it sure does have Madden. He's there again. He made this game just like last time, uh, as it says on the title screen, uh, I made another game. This game is very similar to the previous Madden game that, that we played. But I do think this has some updates to it that I appreciated. If you want to know kind of generally how this game plays, it's pretty much the same as as what we talked about the last time we talked about a Madden game. There's kind of a pseudo 3D behind the player's view of the field. There are different plays that you can select and a roster of teams, a roster of, I guess the players are all fictional, right? Yeah, they didn't have the rights to any official NFL stuff, so I don't believe that any of the players' names are going to be based on real players. So I do, in general, I think, like the way this game is put together better than the first Madden that we played, but it's still the same kind of game. I just feel like the way this game lays out the selection options for different plays is a little bit cleaner and easier for me to understand how those relate to what's actually going on on the field. There's kind of a nice polished snappiness to the steps of selecting a play, panning back to the field, and then actually getting into the action. And I mean, I think the production is a step up here as well. Like the digitized gif, I guess you could say, of like the crowds and the stands cheering if you make a significant gain on a play. I don't think there was anything like that in the previous game. I don't think so either. I kind of, it did kind of stick out to me this time and I I liked it. I think the view might be just slightly different and it it gives you a slightly better view of the field. Uh, I don't think it's anything drastic from last year's game, but it's all just minor improvements in this game. The big problem is that like the last game, this game is not newbie friendly. And again, you know, we are not football people. We're not really sports people. Um, I like to watch curling sometimes. I like that one sport that Red Bull came up with. It's like people on skates going down like a luge track that looks super dangerous. That's fun. (laughs) I like American Gladiators. They should bring that back, but not in the crappy way that they did in 2008. Yeah, all this is just to say, we don't know a lot about football. This game is really hard to get into if you don't know the ins and outs of the game. Like, actually, here, let me let me go back to Wikipedia here really fast. The Wikipedia article says, uh, there are new features in John Madden Football 93, including no huddle offense. Maybe from the context of that, I can kind of figure out what that means, but I don't really know what that means or why that's important. If you're a football person, you probably know exactly why that's important. And you're probably thinking like, oh, oh my gosh, they they added that, huh? Hmm, Okay, very interesting. You know, like, and this is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You know, like the the game is not here to teach you how to play football. The game is not here to hold your hand if you don't know how to play football. And I argue that If you are really into football and know what all this means and why it's important, you're just playing a more modern version of football right now. You're not going back to the Super Nintendo to play this one. I I have a hard time imagining that there's something special about this game in the history of all football simulation games across all video game console history that would make people attracted to this one over anything else. There's a reason why... 
yearly updates of sports games end up in the bargain bin. They are unnecessary for people that actually like these games for the most part in a way that practically nothing else can be. Another thing that sort of bugged me about both of these games is that the way that the playbook is sort of broken up, you know, like I, I maybe again from my limited knowledge of how football works, like I may be expecting a playbook where the first option that I have are to choose a running play or a passing play, and that isn't how the rule book is broken up. Now, again, somebody who knows a lot about football can probably tell me, like, yeah, that would be a stupid way to break up plays. Like, that's not nearly as important as, you know, like this, this, or, you know. And I and I get that. It's trying too hard to be actual football, and that's only going to appeal to people who really know the ins and outs of actual football. Um, and I don't know if I've gotten any more to say about it, really, do you? No, I really don't. I guess let's go ahead and, and find a place for it on the list. Given that this is so similar to John Madden football, mm-hmm. which we have at 53 right now, I would say this is an incremental improvement over that. I I feel like the obvious thing would be to just put this right above John Madden football. What do you think? I think we're going to run into a problem where like all the John Maddens are getting clumped together. And I don't think I care about that. (laughs) I think that's sort of the only way this can go, honestly. Yeah, we've got super play action football right above John Madden football right now. I'm guessing that means there was something about that that made it easier for us to parse than what's in John Madden football. And I can't imagine that this game did anything to change that. No, I wouldn't think so either, even though I don't specifically remember much about super play action football. Do you feel good about that? Putting Madden 93 right above John Madden football at uh, and, and making it our new number 53 game? I feel just fine about that. I think this is also the, the last game that had the title of like the full title John Madden football. I think after this, it would just be called Madden. But I guess we'll find out next year, won't we? we sure <laughs> will. I mean, unless one of these games is just a drastic improvement that makes the game more accessible to people like us, I can't imagine that we're going to do anything else but other than just clump them all together. One of them could also be a, a catastrophic failure. Yeah. Shall we move on? (laughs) What do we have next? Yeah, let's get out of this football stadium and let's head over to the racing stadium? Racetrack. That's, That's the term for that thing. We're talking about Cyberspin. And again, I've got a lot to talk about history-wise, and I do not have a lot to say about this game. Why don't you go ahead with that? Uh, I'm very fascinated to hear what you've dug up about this game. So uh, pull up a seat, grab a snack, folks. This one is going to be a little bit lengthy (laughs) based on my notes here. So uh, this is a futuristic racing video game with a top-down perspective, very Formula One sort of look to the game. Uh, This game was known in Japan as Shinseki GPX Cyber Formula. Uh, It was based on an anime called Future GPX Cyber Formula, and all of that anime stuff was all but scrubbed from the North American release of this game, which is why this game is kind of bare bones, but we'll we'll get to that. I'm going to say I think that was a poor choice, possibly licensing-related, possibly just them trying to 
erase anything that seemed too Japanese from this game. This game was developed by Arc System Works, and if you keep up with modern video games, you know who those folks are. This is another case in which the developer from this era that made this game is still around today, and they are still thriving today. Yeah, I would say they're they're in rude health. They've never been more successful than they are right now, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Even more amazing, the man who founded the company in 1988, Minoru Kidoka, is still the company's CEO to this day. So Arc System Works started out in May of 1988 with the simple name Arc. Uh, in their early days, they were another one of those shadow developers that we've talked a lot about, studios that would be contracted by other studios to do a lot, if not all of the heavy lifting involving a game's development, and typically wouldn't have their studio name in the game's credits, if the game had credits at all that weren't just a bunch of pseudonyms. So Arc did a lot of work for companies that we've already talked about in the past, like Namco, and uh, some that we haven't, like Pac-In Video, and I think we'll talk more about Pac-In Video eventually? Maybe? I'm not actually sure. Uh, Pac-In Video has a very strange and unwieldy history to try to unravel, so if we get to them, we will talk about that. Anyway, according to Moby Games, Arc System Works would have their fingerprints on about two dozen games between its formation in 88 and 2000. Uh, their output was pretty varied, like a lot of companies in this era, it would seem. A lot of different genres represented on a lot of different platforms. Aside from this racing game, their gameography would include some tennis games, several 2D action platformer games, some licensed titles based on things like Yu Yu Hakusho and Sailor Moon that I don't think ever made it to the USA, and even a graphical reimagining of the classic text adventure game Zork, which came out on PS1 and Sega Saturn. I have never heard of that port of Zork or that 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 remake of Zork or whatever it was. That's that's really interesting, huh? Yeah, I hadn't heard of that either, but there you go. However, their big break would come in 1998 cuz that is when they released Guilty Gear. That was their first big 2D fighting game. By this point, they were no longer operating from the shadows. They'd long since started developing their own games. And in fact, it seems like they actually set up several different dev teams within the company, at least for a time. This game is credited to Team Neoblood, which is a fantastic name. Yeah, that's that's a great name. <laughs> it's like like a like a goth kid, like, uh, my name is Neoblood now. Neoblood. <laughs> Uh, anyway, that team was helmed by Daisuke Ishiwatari, who actually had the idea of an anime-inspired fighting game to rival the likes of Street Fighter while he was still in school. Ishiwatari has a few credits pre-Guilty Gear, but somehow was given the green light by Arc System Works early on in his career to uh, get a team together to make this game, and that decision paid off big time. Uh, you might say it kind of made the company in a lot of ways. Like, it kind of, like, secured their future. Yeah, made the company and, and sort of pointed them in the direction of where they would go. And in a time when the fighting game market was just flooded with mediocre products by companies chasing that Street Fighter money, Guilty Gear seemed to have come out of nowhere and was being talked about in the same conversations as games like Street Fighter 2. Like, it was one of those also-rans, but was actually good. System Works would go on to make more Guilty Gear games as well as uh, Blaze Blue, Dragon Ball, Fighter Z. Uh, they worked on the Persona 4 Arena fighting games for Atlas. They are arguably one of the most important companies in the modern fighting game community. Uh, so much so, in fact, that in 2018's Evo Championship, which is like one of the 
biggest, uh, most well-known fighting game tournaments out there that happens every year. Uh, three out of the eight games being played on the main stage were products of the studio. That's really incredible. Wow. But these aren't the only games that Arc System has been putting out there in the last decade. They've acquired the rights to many of Technos' uh, library from the previous rights holder, Million, who I believe we've mentioned before. I think we talked about all that when we talked about uh, Super Double Dragon. They have not been shy about making those games available. As of this recording, they actually released a compilation of Double Dragon and Kunio-kun games on the Switch and PS4 back in February. And that collection also is incredible because it contains, like, first-time-ever English localizations of, like, 11 Kunio-kun games that never came out in the West before. <laughs> They're doing some good stuff with that back catalog of titles that they they acquired. And uh, on top of that, they've also published some indie titles, including uh, Swery65 Studios. Oh, God, what's the name of his studio again? Uh, White Owls? Yes, thank you. The Missing, J.J. Macfield and the Island of Memories. That was an ARC-published game as well. That's cool that they published that. That's, I feel like in some ways, a less commercial product than, you know, a lot of the stuff that they're they're known for. So good for them. Yeah, that's another thing that I really like about ARC is that in a time when a lot of the giant studios are taking fewer and fewer risks, ARC seems to be really spreading out and, and putting a lot of different sorts of products out there. And I think that's awesome. So between, you know, publishing some niche indie stuff between releasing old games and making them available on other platforms and just their fighting games. They've got a lot going on. And uh, that is pretty much our system works. Another company that also has a pretty storied history is the publisher of Cyberspin. That is Takara, who started out as a Japanese toy company. This one was founded in 1955, so we're going way back. And if you aren't familiar with the name Takara, they're the company that created Transformers, or more specifically, they created the Diaclone and Microman Microchange toy lines, which Hasbro would merge and rebrand as Transformers when they brought them to the United States. For our purposes, though, we will fast forward to 1977. This is when they started entering the video game market, kind of. Their first product in the space is perhaps stretching the term a bit to call it a video game, but it was an electronic handheld toy called the Comp 4, in which the player would have to guess a code, and after each guess, the machine would let the player know how many numbers they got correct and uh, which numbers they got in the right place. They also released two home consoles that year, the Black Jaguar 6 and the Video Fighter G2200. Uh, these were both basically Pong clones that played variations on the game. Man, that is... Those are such extreme names. It's like, yeah, it's a Pong clone. <laughs> yep, <laughs> it really is. This is a super ultra deluxe mega bicep 8 million. What does it do? It's a Pong clone. Yeah, plays Pong. Pong clones were very common things back in the 70s. They absolutely were. Uh, Nintendo had one of their own. Yep. In 1978, they would release a line of pullback toy cars called Choro Q, which came to the U.S. under the name Penny Racers. Now, obviously, that's not a video game, but it's important to this discussion because the company would go on to publish a series of video games around the Choro Q brand. You know a little bit about that series. I've actually played one of those games. That is a fascinating series of video games because they are a self-described car PG, a car role-playing game. Uh, it's sort of like the concept of Pixar's Cars, but earlier and weirder, and I would say in basically every way better. <laughs> You're a car, it's alive, it lives in a world where like everybody is cars, 
Uh, you drive into a building. There's a car there behind the counter at the coffee shop. They made a, a number of these. And a lot of them actually did end up coming out here in the West. Only some of them were under the name Choro Q. There were other ones that were called Penny Racers. There's a really good-looking one for the PlayStation 2 that I would like to play that came out in America under the name Road Trip. It, it was basically a game where you're in like kind of an RPG-style like top-down overworld, and you're, you go around a town as a car, you buy upgrades for yourself, and then you enter races. And there are like actual like 3D racing game races in this that you have to beat to progress in the game you earn money and you follow a a story it's a a strangely specific game series that is kind of all over the place in terms of you know both like the scale of the games and like the actual quality of them you can check out like kind of how many different completely seemingly completely unconnected localizations of these games there are and uh it's it's pretty it's pretty wild yeah. So after that, um, where do you think we rank Churro Q on the list? No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> um, anyway, we're not even done with Takara yet. Uh, we're going to fast forward again to 1982 and 1983, where we find the company porting several arcade games to a very short-lived Japanese home computer called the Sword M5. Not like a swinging sword, but S-O-R-D, made by the Sword Company. Um, ever heard of that computer before? Because I haven't. Never. I've never heard of this thing, no. Takara managed to get its hands on some uh, very prominent arcade games like Super Pac-Man and Dig Dug for the system, as well as a few others. It's possible, just from the little bit of research that I did on that system's game library, that Takara might have been responsible for the entirety of the Swords game library. Very few companies can say that, I feel like. So uh, Takara would go on to work on several games for the NES and Super NES, uh, among a lot of other systems. They worked on Game Boy ports, fighting games like King of Fighters 95 and World Heroes 2 Jet. Did not even know that those two games came out on the Game Boy, but there you go. Uh, They also worked on the Sega CD port of Earthworm Jim 2 and ports of King of the Monsters and its sequel on the SNES, which um, I feel like that should have come up in our thing about that. It probably should have, yeah. I don't know if it actually did. Maybe it did. I I don't remember now. They also worked on a lot of games based on the Battle Arena Toshinden series. Was it an anime or was that just a video game? I think that was just a video game. They might have made an anime, but I think that it was essentially just a, a video game series that spun off into some other things. I fell down way too many rabbit holes in doing research for this. That was just one I could not go down this particular time. I apologize. <laughs> in 2006, Takara merged with fellow Japanese toy company Tommy. Uh, that's T-O-M-Y, which has its own story as a video game publisher up to that point, but we will need to save that for another time. Uh, since the merger, Tommy published numerous Naruto games throughout the aughts, as well as a few other things. Uh, their last game, according to Moby Games, was Q Transformers uh, in uh, 2014, uh, which was a mobile game. Uh, Tommy is still out there, but whether or not they're still a video game company, I'm not quite sure. In any case, it seems that the Takara name is is pretty much done with. I They might use it for a few things still, but um, that's pretty much the story of Takara. Uh, having gone through all that, uh, I guess we should talk about cyberspace. Yeah. Which, it is a, a top-down 
Formula One-ish game. Uh, as we alluded to before, probably because of the fact that they stripped out all of the story and everything that is around the racing, this feels like a very bare-bones game. Kind of challenging, but not very rewarding. So basically, you ramp up to speed very quickly, and then you get... Um, this is a, a thing that's fairly common for, for games of this type. Uh, you get kind of an indicator flashing at the top of the screen for what turn is about to come up. And then you essentially have to to sort of maneuver your car around whatever whatever twists and turns in the track. It's actually pretty responsively. It, it controls pretty responsively. And it, uh, it, it feels pretty good, but there's not very much to it. I actually found the steering a little bit wonky. Like, it, it just didn't work the way I was expecting. And uh, I found it really hard to steer. I found myself spinning out and going off the road, the track, a lot. Um, I also just kind of, like, out of curiosity, I was trying to sort of figure out, like, are these tracks even possible? Because you're always more or less going straight up from the perspective you're going straight up and i i kept wondering like are these turns like could you actually be doing enough turns to be making an entire loop i don't think you are and it's it's really weird in that way too you never get a sense of the race outside of the exact bit of the race course that you're on like there's not much in the way of kind of scenic detailing your car isn't doesn't really animate particularly much it, it's kind of just a shape that moves across the screen. Uh, you do have kind of a, a life bar, like a power meter that goes down as you bump into corners on the track that um, you do need to go into the pit, you know, when you when you get around to the, the start of the loop again to get yourself powered up again so that you don't crash and die. Though you can still crash and die if you just hit a barrier straight on. That's more or less the game. Uh, obviously... You know, you do race other cars. Uh, unfortunately, I can't speak to how that works because I was never able to get a handle on the controls well enough to get out of the initial qualifying time trial. I'm not sure if I did either, I, and I'm not sure I would have even cared. Uh, it's like everything. It, it's so weird that this is a racing game presented like this. Like this almost looks like a Spy Hunter game. It kind of does, doesn't it? Yeah. Spy Hunter isn't a racing game. Like, it's so strange that they decided to do it like this because racing games have so often, even back in you know the early arcade days, like with a game like Pole Position, been f from the perspective of kind of a camera over the top of the car looking out in front of it. Even stuff like Micro Machines, which is this same kind of top-down racing thing, it zooms way further out and gives you a much better sense of the course that you're on, so it feels much more like an actual racing game than this does. I mean, I feel like the maybe the most successful a top-down racing game has been up to this point would be something like Super Off-Road, which we both liked a whole lot as yeah. well. It's it just, there's so many ways you can do a racing game, and there's already so many, like, pretty good ones on the Super Nintendo, quite frankly, that this just feels ridiculous and unnecessary, and I wouldn't recommend this at all. I can't emphasize how bare-bones the presentation in this game is. I mean, it doesn't really even look like a Super Nintendo game. Like, if you told me this was uh, an NES game, I would believe it. I don't really think I have anything else to say about it, unfortunately. There's really not much to it. Yeah, I um, I don't have much to say about it either. Um, I'm kind of looking at the list right now. Uh, the, the first thing that jumped out at me on this list as a point of comparison was um, F1 ROC Race of Champions, which is sitting at number 71 right now. 
And I think I would go lower than that. What do you think? I would say so as well. I didn't like that game, but I think it at least was a little more ambitious than this. It at least got the presentation right. So Yeah, more right than this. So yeah, I would go down from that for sure. You know, this to me feels like it's almost like a decent comparison with Jack Nicklaus Golf, uh, which was also kind of like a golf game that just didn't really get anything right in kind of the same way that this doesn't really get anything right as a racing game yeah uh how do you feel about that matchup honestly i think i'm still looking lower i'm looking at some of the stuff below that like these baseball games super batter up and super bases loaded at 77 and 78 i don't know if i would put this game above those i'm not even sure i would put this game above the chess master at number 80 right now at least the chess master was a a basic looking but but pretty effective chess game do you have something here where you think uh you think it, you, that you'd call it the floor for this game? It feels real low, but I, I just keep looking at more games. And I'm like, no, I don't think I could put it above that. Like Super Ghouls and Ghosts, I think I would put Super Ghouls and Ghosts above this. Yeah, I agree. I feel like like even Faceball 2000 is maybe a little bit more ambitious. I don't know. That one's a little bit more iffy, actually. What do you think about that matchup between Faceball 2000 and this? It's not a terrible matchup, actually. I think I would probably still put this below that, just because I think that at least that game in terms of presentation, is a little better than this. But it's also similarly just very basic. Just above or just below Faceball 2000 feels like it might be okay for me. I don't think I would put this below Kablooey at 90, for example, because while the the presentation is bare bones in this game, I kind of find the presentation of Kablooey to be, like... Actively unpleasant. Yeah. See, like, I don't remember enough about Roger Clemens' MVP baseball. I mean, clearly we didn't like it very much because we put it at 88. Actually, what do you think about Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank at 89? Would you put it above or below that? I think I might put it below that. I think maybe between Gary Kitchen's Super Battle Tank and Kablooey is where I would uh, I would end up slotting this game in. That game had more going on mechanically. I didn't like the way it looked, and I certainly don't like the concept of that game, but I do think that it was, you know, a little bit more committed to to selling its whole its whole concept than than this game is. You know, like I don't personally like the presentation because it's all a bunch of, you know, military stuff and whatnot, but I do think that, you know, like if you're looking for that kind of game specifically, like Gary Kitchen Super Battle Tank kind of does it right, if that's what you want. Whereas like if you want a racing game, this is a complete failure. So yeah, I think I think I'm I'm with you there. I think I am for making this our new number ninety. All right, Cyber Spin, new number ninety. I, I, this doesn't feel cyber at all to me. I just want to say that as well. Like that's probably stuff that was all conveyed in the story sequences and stuff that are not in this game. But yeah, it's just there's nothing here. There's just very little meat on these bones. Very iffy early game for a company that would go on to prominence like Arc System Works. But you know that that just makes it all the more uh, an interesting story, doesn't it? Yeah, it it really does. For real rags to riches story there, we'll say. So all right, well we've got uh, one more game for today. Uh, yeah, we do. Yeah, and that game is Chuck Rock, which is a game that came out on everything. And I I thought this game was a port of an arcade game, but it wasn't. And I think I was confusing that because I definitely remember this game being featured on Nick Arcade at one point. Yeah. And I feel sorry for any kid that picked it. (laughs) Yeah, why don't you tell us about where Chuck comes from and uh what he's doing here well on the topic of less than stellar starts uh, this was developed by core design that would go on to basically create the tomb raider series 
it's another game studio with a kind of interesting story. Uh, this one was started in Derby, England. So yeah, so this was started by a bunch of folks, uh, a lot of folks who were former employees of Gremlin Graphics, who I don't think we're going to talk about. I think we would have talked about them if this were an NES show, but I don't even know if Gremlin was still around by this point. I think Gremlin had gone away by this point, but they were a pretty successful and prolific British microcomputer game developer, and their games did get ported to the NES, to two consoles. They were acquired by IDOS Interactive in 1996, and it was under them that they would end up creating Tomb Raider, which is kind of unfortunate for them because uh, they and some of their executives ended up taking a lot of the blame when Tomb Raider, the Angel of Darkness, failed in 2003. The IP was actually taken from them and given to Crystal Dynamics, which was another studio uh, under IDOS. They uh, would be sold to uh, Rebellion, another independent developer, but Tomb Raider would remain with IDOS, so their their baby was kind of taken from them. Rebellion Derby, which is what the studio would be uh, renamed to, would end up getting closed in 2010, but I don't know how many games they produced uh, between their acquisition by Rebellion and their closure. Interestingly enough, though, the Core Design's website is still up. You can actually go to core-design.com. There's still a website there kind of documenting its history. Apparently, the website is now run by a fan community, or maybe just a couple of fans, I'm not sure, that are sort of keeping the website up for posterity. And you can even see like an evolution of the website under the um, About page that will actually show you like what the website looked like in different eras. It's it's really interesting stuff. Also, um, because it's preserving this wonderful 90s, early 2000s web design, uh, when you go to the website, you get a personal greeting from Laura Croft. Welcome to the Core Design website. folks love it when websites just talk or make noise without any input from you. Yep, it's really great. <laughs> Yeah, I guess that's kind of the, the, the shortish history of core design. Um, we've done so much history in this episode that I kind of didn't do a deep dive thinking that we'd have other core design games to talk about. But in all honesty, this might actually be the only core design game released on the Super Nintendo. So this might be it for them. And this, and this was published by Sony Imageworks. Yes, who I'm pretty sure we've talked about before. We have talked about them before. They they published Hook, the connection with Sony Imageworks is is part of the the groundwork that essentially got laid for Tomb Raider eventually being like a a series that was very heavily identified with the PlayStation brand. But yeah, Sony Imageworks in their role as as kind of just sort of a a publisher for a variety of different things. I uh, put this one out on the Super Nintendo and, um, you know, uh, I guess good for them. Uh, there, there are sequels to Chuck Rock. There is a, a Chuck Rock 2 Son of Chuck, I believe is what it's called. And also a kart racing game called BC Racers. Those games did not come out on the Super Nintendo, but this one did. It's here and uh, I guess we've got to talk about it. All right, so um, Chuck Rock, this is a side-scrolling 2D platformer. A lot of the actions revolve around you, as you might suspect from the name, picking up rocks and throwing them, either at enemies or throwing them in places to give yourself uh, new platforms to jump off of. From the top, uh, you are Chuck Rock. You are a caveman. You're going through a world made up of very large flowers for some reason, and dinosaurs uh, of various sizes that are all pretty hostile to you. 
Uh, well, mostly pretty hostile. Some of the pterodactyls will just carry you from one area to another. But yeah, um, side-scrolling platformer uh, where you were basically basically just trying to get to the end of each stage. You're not trying to collect a bunch of stuff in this one. And yeah, uh, like you said, picking up and throwing rocks uh, to be used as mostly platforms is is sort of the main hook of this game. I, I didn't find the game all that fun to play. The the throwing rock mechanics, you know, kind of made me think of Super Mario Brothers 2, where you're throwing vegetables at enemies to take them out. I didn't find it nearly as easy to just pick up a thing and no. take out an enemy by throwing it. First of all, like, you have to press down on the D-pad and another button to pick up a rock, which feels unnecessary like why don't i just have a pick up things button that is bad yeah in general i I don't feel like the rock throwing mechanic works very well in this like playing this game and getting through the levels in this game sometimes feels like you're essentially trying to get something over on the game in order to to move forward like almost like you're having to do like speed run tricks to get through the levels. So there's two types of rocks, basically. There's kind of a flat plank of rock and a big, heavy boulder. And you'll find these scattered throughout the levels. They're not destructible, though I guess you could throw them in a pit and they would go away. But basically, you can pick these up, carry them, and then throw them to either hurt enemies or make like kind of an extended ledge for you to stand on or just like a an intermediary platform for you to jump up on. There's not often a great indication of what's coming up and what you might need the rock for. So every time you find a rock, it's generally just a good idea to pick it up and carry it with you until it becomes useful. The problem with that is that, for one thing, uh, whenever Chuck gets hit by something, he'll drop the rock. And the big rocks drastically slow down Chuck and make his jump almost useless. Like he, he has like a kind of little micro jump when, when that happens. And a lot of times you'll find yourself in positions where you're like, okay, there's a big rock here. This is kind of going to suck, but I've got to carry this now through the level. And like, it's, it's frustrating. Like it doesn't feel like there's much in the way of rhyme or reason to how this is designed. And it's also pretty possible to get yourself stuck in places where you need a rock to get out of like a pit or something. And you just don't have one. The rock throwing thing doesn't ever feel like it should be the central mechanic of this game. It feels like a weird incidental thing you can do that just happens to be used all over the game. It doesn't feel like the mechanic was used very thoughtfully for the player. So for one thing, the the rock throwing is not the only way you can dispatch of enemies. You've got like a, a little attack, which... Weird belly bump, yeah. Kind of has the what I like to call the lagoon problem where it's an attack that's very <laughs> short range and has a very limited window where it's got a hurt box attached to it that will actually take out the enemies. So if you don't yeah. time it just right, you're likely to take damage. Uh, you also don't get much in the way of invincibility frames in this game. So no, you don't. Yeah. Which was a huge problem for me when I was like running through thorn bushes and just constantly getting hit over and over again. You know, people look at this and say, like, okay, these rocks are really, really important. How do we make sure that we get we don't put players in an unwinnable situation and kind of like soft lock them? And how do we make this mechanic, you know, work and feel 
fluid and not like a huge hassle. Because yeah, uh, I was running into the problem that you were talking about where, okay, there's a big rock, but I don't see any use for it right now. I'm just going to leave it there. And then, oh, I needed to grab it because I needed to get up to this platform now. So I got to walk back, grab it, and then walk you know, to where I was before. Right, yeah. I feel like they could have taken some notes out of the Mario 2 playbook where the vegetables that you need to pick up to attack enemies are everywhere. And because these rocks are even more important because they also serve as platforms that you need to use to get to certain areas – Maybe not only do you give Chuck a dedicated pick-up button, but maybe he can just always pick up small rocks, at least, out of the ground. That would be great. Like, there are ways you could do this type of game design and make it feel fun and and clever. Some other issues I've got with the game are just the visual language of the levels themselves. They've got another problem, which I like to call the Earthworm Jim problem, where sometimes the environments, it's hard to tell what's a platform and what's just decoration. It's hard to tell, you know, like what's foreground and what isn't. And sometimes the foreground just gets in the way of the level being visible. It's definitely got a style going for it. I'll give it that. But the style just gets in the way sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's bright and colorful. This does feel, to some extent, like a game where the people making it were more focused on, on the art design of the game than making it readable in all cases. And for a game that's like a weird sort of half-step between an action game and a puzzle platformer, that's a pretty poor choice, honestly. Like, I feel like you really should prioritize the readability of the levels if, if you're going to make a game like this. Do you want to talk about Chuck himself? Yeah, let's let's talk about that now. I hate the way this guy <laughs> looks. I'm sorry. I just like he is one of the most unappealing looking video game characters I think I've I've that, that we've encountered. He's gross looking but not even in like a fun way yeah i mean i i see what they were kind of going for like things like ren and stimpy were really popular around this time i believe so i get why there's some appeal to making a character that is aesthetically kind of ugly i mean he's like he's bald he's got a head shape like a butter bean he's got a big pot belly and really extreme stubble on his big jaw in combination with the fact that he has really like not very visible eyes, uh, except for when he gets hurt and they kind of bug out. It's not a, a, an appealing character to play as to an extent where like, I feel like it actually does become a part of my issues with the game because it's like, I, I dislike looking at it so much that I don't want to figure out its secrets and get better at playing it. I don't like this character and I don't want to play as him. And nothing else about the game is really keeping me captivated here i can't quite put my finger on it but it's just really deeply unpleasant for as much as they clearly prioritize the art design when making this not much else about this game really stands out honestly visually yeah not really it's got very generic environments very dollar store flintstones knockoff looking dinosaurs basically i will say like i think the bosses some of which are very large are pretty cool looking and have some neat designs to them that's fair the bosses are are probably the visual highlight of the game it's kind of faint praise in this case because there's not much else going on here this game it's it's playable i mean if you can kind of get your head around what the game's gonna probably expect you to do with all the rocks it's not there's not really like a major problem with the controls but i do not like this game very much no i don't either i was kind of expecting something more than this and it 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 pretty profoundly disappointed me. I would say it's definitely the worst dinosaur-based platform game we've played so far. 
Yeah, and that sounds like a good spot to maybe start talking about the list on because yeah, we've already got at least one. I mean, like we've got Joe and Mac at 33. I don't think this even touches that. Oh, no, no. And I, I would say it also does not touch Dino City at 40. You know what I'm kind of looking more towards is um, where did we put Skull Jagger? We put Skull Jagger real low. Skull Jagger is number 95. Wow, we put it that low, huh? Wow, okay. We put it real low. Yeah, we really did not like Skulljagger. On the one hand, like I think Skulljagger had a, a better concept in mind for a character than Chuck Rock has, but I think mechanically I think Chuck Rock is slightly better than Skulljagger. It's less confused than Skulljagger. Skulljagger had all that weird stuff with the bubblegum power-ups that just was like so badly designed they needed to give you a training mode to practice it and you know you can say at least chuck rock doesn't use its central mechanic that well but at least it's fairly straightforward skull jaggers protagonist uh storm jackson i believe his name was or stormy jackson <laughs> yeah not a very good uh-huh. design but at least like i don't hate it the way i hate chuck rock's design but i don't know if that alone is enough to make me put this below skull jagger i mean like it could just be personal preference on our part like again I see what they're going for there, and I, I can't say that, like, at that time, that was a bad idea that was doomed to failure. Like He he does look, like he said, you know, like he would fit in in, like, a, a Nicktoon or something, you know? There's absolutely a place for this kind of character design. The fact that I don't like this particular one doesn't mean it was a terrible idea for them to try it. Okay, so so let me ask you this. We talked a little bit about Kablooey before and about how Kablooey's aesthetic is there, but it's it's so bad that it kind of like gets in the way of the game. That's not that different from what we've just been talking about with Chuck Rock. And I think that game also had some kind of poorly thought out implementations of its mechanics. How do you feel about that as a point of comparison for this game? Uh, mm, this is tough because I think Kablooey's concept is better than Chuck Rock's, you know, like it's got this, this sort of puzzled gameplay going on. I think it's presentation leaves a lot more to be desired. Like, I don't, I don't think there was the effort in the presentation on Kablooey that I think there was on Chuck Rock. Kablooey did also just have that one very bad background track that it used for all of its levels. It sure did. You know, like we have to listen to Chuck saying Oonga Boonga, but we only have to, we don't have to listen to it like repeated in the soundtrack and sample no, over and over again. No. So. Oonga Boonga. And honestly, like there's way more you can do with that than there is, the, you know, uh, Kablooey's Get Ready. So get, get ready. This is a tough call. This is a tough call. I think I could put this above Kablooey. I I think that there are some solid ideas here. I just think that they needed a little bit more time. I think they needed to consider the ideas that they had a little bit more thoughtfully. Like, I think that like a few changes to this game and you've got a platformer that could have stood the test of time. I agree. It's, it's like, you can see where this could have gone right, even though it it doesn't really, it doesn't really work as, as it's done here. And honestly, I think I would put this above Cyberspin at number 92. Like, Cyberspin is just such a nothing game. I'll say, I think Bart's Nightmare is the absolute ceiling for this one at 84, because I think, honestly, like, the presentation on that is pretty damn good. The presentation on that is, like, one of the main things that, that helps that game be out of the bottom 10. Oh, I yeah, think. yeah. I mean, like, it, it looks like a Simpsons game. It They did a great job translating the Simpsons look to sprites. I've been looking at this this sort of chunk of the list for the the last couple minutes and i think i am going to stake my claim that i think this game should go between cubert 3 and clue 
because I think Cubert three is a, a drastically unpleasant game to look at, but I think the foundation of Cubert as a game is very solid in a way that makes it just just puts it like a step above Chuck Rock. And I also think that Chuck Rock is a more functional game than the Super Nintendo version of Clue. I think I am good with that. So that would make this our new number 86? That's correct. All right. Yep. Tough luck, Chuck. You're uh, kind of near the bottom of the list. I would say better luck next time, but uh, you're not actually coming back for the Super Nintendo again. Yeah, so. I can't say I'm sad about that. Um, I mean, I don't know what it is. Like, there are so many games about cavemen. <laughs> This was the the era of like cave exploitation, I think. Yeah, and this one just feels like it's it's done so much poorer than you know, like the the other caveman game that we have on the list right now, Joe and Mac. Like it, it's it's so much worse than that, so much less than that game. No, it's worse than the other caveman game, and it's worse than the other dinosaur game. This is a, this was disappointing for me. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. This is kind of a lackluster trio of games in general like you know I was, I was really hoping we'd find something interesting here but most interesting thing about all of these games is where they came from i hope y'all enjoyed the deep dives into the history of these companies we did that genuinely was i think the most interesting thing we could have done for all of these games sometimes doing the research on the history is what makes talking about these games fun we've got a couple of interesting things coming up for the next episode it actually um, I'm not entirely sure what's coming up in the next episode. Is Bazooka Blitzkrieg a a Super Scope game? Uh, you know, let's let's check that out real quickly. Hold on a sec. Um, so that is a Super Scope game. So we're going to skip that one for right now. Uh, so next time we're going to be talking about Captain Novelin, Best of the Best Karate Championship, or sorry, Championship Karate. <laughs> Big difference there. <laughs> And Firepower 2000. All right. Well, uh, I am really excited for Captain Novelin. That is going to be a fascinating one to talk about. Yeah, get ready, folks. You probably have never seen a game like that one. I, I mean, you know what? At this point, they probably have because I think Captain Novelin is well-trod territory at this point. But we're going to talk about it anyway. That's a good point. He is internet famous. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So we're going to put our drop in the bucket of, of internet discussion about that game. But I don't really know much about of the best karate uh i do know some stuff about firepower 2000 because we did play that one in our old uh youtube days in our old old youtube days we played uh best of the best on nes so oh okay yeah we actually do know a little bit about that one if it's anything like the nes game i think it's gonna be visually impressive and but not terribly great gameplay wise Uh, that's an electro brain game which isn't a great sign but you know we'll see And yeah, I guess that is going to do it for us today. So folks, as always, thank you all so much for listening. And remember, defund and dismantle the police. Until next time, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. Play it loud. intro outro song is how now brown cow by techno axe who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty free at technoaxe.com that's t-e-k-n-o-a-x-e.com you know what he almost reminds me of like the character old man hunger from ren and stimpy the guy with the the, he does, the turkey me, leg yeah. on his head like again like a kind of unpleasant looking character um but i could i could easily see some pretty gnarly gross ups
of uh of of Chuck Rock, and I, I don't even want to think about that. Um, no, <laughs> yeah, like I, you could almost imagine like an episode of Ren and Stimpy where they go back to the prehistoric era and they meet Chuck Rock, and he, yeah, he would fit in quite well in that universe. 